Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curth, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curth. Hello there, it's six o'clock. I'm Michelle Jubery and this is Jubes and Co, the show where we'll get into some of the things that have got you talking today. Now, NATO summit over in Madrid. Boris Johnson has called for members to dig deeper and pay more. Uh, never mind that, though, because Ben Wallace, our defence secretary, says that the money we're spending here on defence is not enough. I mean, everywhere I look, it seems to be calls for more and more and more money. Let's pack. Where do we get this money from for a moment? And let me ask you, do we need to be spending more on defence in this country? Did the cuts that were made go too deep? How do we overturn that? Speaking of overturning, you'll be familiar by now with Roe v Wade in the States was overturned last week. And when it comes to how much bodily autonomy women should have, a Tory MP here has pointed out that this is a topic which needs proper political debate. Given that another body is involved, of course, I speak of abortion. Uh, Lucky for that, Tory MP, he says we need debate. Well, this is indeed a debate program. I'll open it up to my panel and, of course, to you. Where do you stand on all that? And fresh calls for proportional representation. Should we have it in this country? Do you think that Parliament reflects the way that the public vote as it stands with first past the post? If the answer to that is no, is proportional representation the answer? We'll have all of that to come. Thanks, Polly. And wow, what an inspirational uh, lady Deborah is, isn't she? So much good uh, work, attention that she's brought to the horrible disease that is cancer. So, of course, thoughts with all of her family. And also, by the way, uh, all of those and the families of those that are suffering that don't perhaps have uh, that profile because what an awful uh, disease cancer is. Let's hope that one day we can get to the point where it really uh, doesn't uh, affect as many people as it currently does Right, well, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, Daniel Moylan, the former advisor to Boris Johnson, now Tory life peer in the House of Lords, the author and academic Frank Ferredi, and political consultant Emma Burnell. Good evening, all of you three. I haven't seen you for a while, Frank. Been on holiday, Italy. Look at him, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Coming back, he looks very dashing. Welcome to all of you. Uh, and you know the drill. Oh, and you, Daniel, as well, by the way. You look dashing, you, too. You. Sorry. Um, oh, and you, Emma. <laughs> now, haven't I? Go on, started something. Uh, you know the drill, don't you? Uh, on Jubes & Co., it's not just about us here. It's about you at home as well. What's on your mind tonight? Paulette has been in touch. Uh, said she loves this show. She thinks it gets better and better every night. So thank you, Paulette. Thanks for your loyalty as well and sticking with us and watching. Uh, someone else, however, says, Michelle, have you come to work in your jammies? No, I have not, you cheeky so-and-so. This is my <laughs> lovely summer dress. I thought I looked quite nice. I'm telling everyone else how dashing they look. I thought I looked all right as well, but no, that view is having none of it. Uh, anyway, get in touch with me. Let me know your thoughts on the topics tonight. We'll be talking about, of course, NATO and defence spending. Talking about bodily autonomy, especially when it comes to women. I mean, these conversations only ever seem to happen about women and don't really sit here pontificating about what men can and can't do, do we? But that's probably a topic for another day. 
and also proportional representation, get in touch. GBviews at gbnews.uk is the email. You can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at GBnews if that's your thing. And you can subscribe to us on YouTube if you haven't already. Many of you watch that way, by the way. Good evening to you if you're there. Um, if you're heading out, don't worry, you can take me with you. We are on DAB Plus Radio, so wherever you are, you are very welcome tonight. Now, top story, Boris Johnson, of course, has been meeting other world leaders on the opening day of the NATO summit in Madrid today. He's urged fellow NATO members to dig deep and increase the spending targets beyond the current level of 2% of GDP, of course, to ward off the threat from Russia. But the Prime Minister is resisting public pressure from his own Defence Secretary and the head of the army to increase Britain's own military budget. Spending is apparently effectively being cut due to inflation and Boris has so far refused to spend more on defence. Should he? Uh, Frank, I'm going to start with you because uh, rumour has it you've just written a new book about Ukraine. That's right, yes. Your thoughts on all of this? It's a tricky question because uh, everybody's asking for more money. Mm. Every single department needs more cash. Uh, at the same time, I do think uh, that uh, defence is going to be taken more seriously and we should be giving a, a bit more cash to, to the defence sector. But what I do worry about is that just simply by giving more money to defence mm. will not necessarily make us more ready for war. You can see very clearly what's happened to the NHS or education, putting a lot of money, and very often a lot of that money is wasted. And we've seen over the last few years that the procurement policy of the defense sector has been very poor. We've kind of bought weapons that have not been up to the job in, in, in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Mm. And what I would like to see is a proper military strategy that's aligned with our geopolitical world at the moment being crafted in the first place. And once we know exactly where we stand, how to get ready for war, then I think the financial uh, issues should follow rather than the other way around. Because if we were to just simply uh, increase the amount of money we put in defence, I think it would be wasted. Yeah, and uh, one of the things Ben Wallace wants is more uh, kind of personnel. I, I make it a bit crass and I say boots on the ground. It's not necessarily that, but more personnel. Because we saw huge cuts, didn't we, to army personnel. Um, uh, Daniel, where do you stand? Yeah, well, I, um, I think we do need to spend more. And the army has become too small and... Um, and uh, Frank is absolutely right. Defence procurement has not been a great success story. He's also right, I think, in that we need to have a plan before we spend the money. But we also need to think not just about our geopolitical interests, but also about what type of warfare we might be fighting in the future. Um, I mean, we've seen tanks in Ukraine, and we were all worried about tanks, and they don't seem to have been as effective. But artillery is, uh, has been used very effectively. But should we be looking, in fact, at electronic warfare, cyber warfare? I'm not a defence expert, I don't know. But we need to know what we're going to spend the money on, and we need, as Frank says, to do the procurement a great deal more smartly. But I have no problem with us spending more. As long as it's effective spend. We, we all want it to be effective. Mm, Emma? I'm afraid, really boringly, I'm going to agree with the other panellists. I know that usually my role here is to bring the lefty uh, uh, other view, but I, I couldn't agree more. I think what's really important and what um, needs to be thought much more about, we always hear this term about some parts of the civil service, um, education, um, health of the blob. It's never applied to defence, and I think it should be equally. I think there is a real fear um, from some politicians of saying no to 
those interests in the army who are just as, as you know, have their own particular specialisms and therefore are going to push those specialisms rather than looking on a broad, whole, strategic basis. And that's what needs to happen. I am uh, not a pacifist. I'm, a, I'm dovish, but I'm not a pacifist. So therefore, you have to accept that money needs to be spent on defence. But we, like all departments... We need to have a good, strong state rather than simply a state where we throw money, good money after bad. And we have the ultimate defence there, don't we, with Trident? Do we, are we all in favour of retaining that? I, I think, well, I'm in favour of retaining that, but there's a, a more fundamental problem, which is that in British society, the military has lost a lot of its prestige. A lot of service personnel feel awkward about wearing their uniforms in public. We often look down upon soldiers as, as somehow... Not you know, having a vocation that's not as good as other kind of jobs, and I think yeah, that we, who, who who does that? I don't know anyone that looks down on soldiers and thinks that that's not a, a good job. If anything, I think people look at soldiers with with awe because most people are not brave enough to do that job. Well, I think you and I have that attitude, but there's a a very powerful sense of estrangement from a military culture, and that's why even the even the army itself advises many of its soldiers not to walk around in their uniforms. In, in the past, that's what you would do. Whereas now, for example, you invite getting into fights in many of the garrison towns in this country. The point I'm really making is that we've not taken uh, the whole ethos of what used to be called the warrior ethos seriously. A lot of young boys who go to school uh, you know, never get the kind of uh, introduction to being a cadet or other kind, other kind of activities that will make them interested in this as a, as a real profession. And in particular, I think the, the, the value of service and duty, which is what the military is all about, the really valuable values, are not held in, in as high esteem as they should be. And I think we have got to somehow create a culture that underpins defense, which is based upon the fact that we are, all of us, in it together, and we support our military in a way that is, you know, not like in the United States, where you go to an airport in the United States, and soldiers are the first ones that get on the airplane, and where people you know, have a, a respect and they kind of praise them for the service that they provide. Whereas here, we just take our military for granted. Mm-hmm. Interesting point. Uh, Emma, by the way, did I see you pull a, a strange face when I asked if it was all uh, in favour of Trident? I, I don't think Trident's worth the money. I think what? there are much, much better ways of defending our country. Um, it is my one lefty shibboleth that I have left <laughs> is that I am a unilateral Islamist. I just don't think... I think it's neither safe nor effective. Uh, and I think we've seen that because uh, I haven't seen any wars being stopped in my lifetime while we've had Trident. But then you will be very familiar with a lot of the um, reservation about going too hard, if you like, uh, against Russia is the fear and the threat of the deterrent from Russia... So the whole kind of, oh, we don't want to start a nuclear war, we don't want to start a nuclear war, that, for me, has been the dominant uh, force or one of the dominant forces throughout this whole conversation, which tells me that, actually, nuclear weapons... Of course, who wouldn't want to live in a world where uh, it was free of nuclear war, nuclear weapons? Anyone would want that world, but that's not a real, a real world. We're in the real world. People do have nuclear weapons. So for me, actually, I've heard the conversation around nuclear deterrent and thought it's reinforced in my mind that we absolutely need Trident. Why, why would you not think it's an effective deterrent? Because we still end up... Well, I'm, it, we've been at war most of the years of my life, uh, so I haven't seen it stopping any wars, and I, that's what I was Who's told been it was We've do. not been at war. Who have we been yes, at we war have. with? Iraq, Afghanistan, for the last 20 years. Uh, we're now 
assisting in the war in Ukraine. You know, nothing has stopped... We're not, it, we're it, not at war, are we? It also stopped the Cold War from becoming a hot war. I mean, so they say, but well, I think well, economics well, had quite a lot to do with that. It may well have something to do with it, but the very fact that both sides knew that they had this active deterrent prevented conflict in Europe for, you know, two or three decades. And that's, that was a very precious two or three decades uh, where we could have had horrible wars occurring. But I think, whether we like it or not, it, it is the only deterrent that will stop someone like Putin from going much further than he's already gone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Where do you stand on Trident, Daniel? Well, I think it's uh, both Emma and Frank have got a point, actually. I would renew Trident, but I have, you have to acknowledge Trident is not an effective day-to-day weapon. It's not going to operate as a weapon. It, it works as a deterrent. Mm. So you're paying a lot of money, and, it, and Emma's right, it is expensive. Uh, you're paying a lot of money effectively for an insurance policy yeah. rather than for a weapon. But if you look at what Putin has done in the cities of Ukraine, as far as I can tell from the television pictures, I mean, what a nuclear bomb does is it wipes out, uh, it can wipe out a whole city. Mm. Um, He's wiped out whole cities. Mm. In effect, there are whole cities, as far as you can tell, that have simply ceased to exist. Yeah, but nuclear. Through the use of artillery. You've got radiation considerations as well, Mm. of course, but you you see what he's achieved simply through the use of artillery. Um, That is where, you know, that is where the actual active force, military force, is, um, is being shown. Trident is a nuclear weapons, or at best an insurance policy, an expensive one, but one I think we have to pay for. Yeah, and I think anyone that's been to somewhere like um, Hiroshima in Japan and you see what's left, I mean, uh, you say it's not much of it left, but when you actually see the damage that a nuclear weapon did, and I mean, this is obviously decades ago, the, much more advanced now these days, I dread to think what they would do. And, of course, everyone wants to live um, in a world where you don't need nuclear weapons. They're barbaric of the highest order, but we do not live in that world. And while people like uh, Putin or whoever has got them, you absolutely, um, in my view anyway, need them. Carmen's emailed in and said, Frank is absolutely right. My husband is in the Reserve Army and he's been told not to wear his uniform outside of the barracks for fear of attack. Um, she says, army personnel are the worst treated in this country. I've told him he shouldn't even bother defending this country. Goodness me. What do you think to that? Well, I think that's a very common response. And I know a lot of uh, ex-military personnel who were really committed to service and duty, who feel demoralised by the way they've been treated. And they really feel that they've been ostracised because of their profession. And I think it's for that reason we have to go back to the basics and teach our, our young people that serving the country is a very noble enterprise. And we've got to do much more than that. Otherwise, we'll simply throw money at an army uh, without giving it the moral authority it needs to fight on our behalf. Would you want um, your son to join the army, Emma? If you had a son, would you want him to? <laughs> Slightly yeah. worried. I've got a son I didn't know yeah. about. <laughs> um, would I want my son? Oh, God, that's a really hard question. Not because of the um, respect thing. I think that is quite an important factor. I think um, there's a real class um, issue around this. I think most of the kids who go off and become squaddies, proper soldiers, are working class kids. And it's a great route. And it used to be a really great route for them to have a proper profession, a proper career. And the more that we look down on them, the more that feels like a sort of, a, a, you know, a very class-based sneery attitude, which I can't bear myself. Um, would I want my own son to join up if I had one? Um, I mean, I'm thinking about my lovely nephew now and I wouldn't want to see him go off to war. I'd, I'd, I'd hate that. 
Um, but I'd be very proud of him if that's what he chose to do. Daniel, thoughts? Um, well, I think it's a, it is a great profession. Frank has a point, and I think we see this also in the way in which we allow um, veterans, former soldiers, to be prosecuted for things where um, it's very difficult to see that they had a personal responsibility and where the events took place many decades before. Um, but uh, uh, I, I agree with Frank. We need to value our armed forces a great deal more than we do. It might be an idea to consider bringing back some form of national service. I wouldn't go Not just far. for boys, but also for girls. Yeah, but not, I wouldn't go not, not necessarily in the old but form. military national service yeah. or just a general community well, service or whatever. We can have a debate on that. It could have a community aspect and a military aspect to it. But I, I do think we need some sense of solidarity becoming part of young people's education. Because at the moment, they, they lead such fragmented, privatised lives. Mm. And they never actually meet as equals. And I like to see people from all classes being in the same unit, being in the same organization, so they get to know each other. And we avoid having that sneering anti-working class sentiment uh, that Emma has, has been describing. Right, well, I've just made a note to self. We shall uh, debate that one day because people do often say, don't they, about the youth of today, uh, bring back national service. Oh. And I kind of... I've got a little boy, and the thought of him kind of packing his little bag and going off to war, I'm like, oh, I mean, OK, granted, he is only uh, tiny, so it's irrelevant. But um, I don't know, I don't think it'd be for me, but the, the concept of a almost uh, mandatory, you leave school or college or university, whatever, and you have to do a year or two year in a particular programme, whether that's got a military aspect or community aspect, I think that is a topic worthy of discussion. So we'll uh, mental note of that and we'll revisit another day. Brian's been in touch saying, Michelle, people seem to think there is a magic money tree. We hear it all the time, spend more on defence, NHS, social care, universal credit. Uh, basically, he's asking, don't people understand that the UK is in massive debt? Well, you tell me, do you understand that? Are you calling for more and more money? Where do we get this money from and how should we prioritise it? Right, going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, do women have an absolute right to bodily autonomy? Of course, uh, this is basically off the back of the whole kind of abortion conversation. Uh, people might be sitting there thinking, what's kind of Roe v. Wade in the States got to do with us? Uh, well, this has all come about because a Tory MP basically has had this conversation. He thinks uh, this should be a political debate on the matter when it comes to uh, bodily autonomy when another body is included. So, of course, you know, we're a debate programme. So we'll step up, we'll have that debate, and I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubry. Keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, we've got Daniel Moylan, a former advisor to Boris Johnson and now a Conservative life peer in the House of Lords, the author and academic Frank Ferreri and political consultant Emma Burnell. Lots of you getting in contact about that last uh, topic. Rodney says, Michelle, uh, the reason why soldiers do not wear uniforms in public is not because people look down on the forces, but because... Uh, of fears of attacks, such as in the case of Lee Rigby. That sentiment is coming through quite a bit, actually, that people are saying it's more a nervousness um, that they might be attacked if they are seen out and about in their uniform. What a sad state of affairs, isn't it? If you're brave enough um, to represent this country in that way, I've got to be honest, I don't think I have got that in me, just putting that out there. So I've got lots of respect for people that have got that. 
Um, what a sad state of affairs that you feel afraid uh, to display who you are for fear of being attacked because of it, purely because of your desire to serve the country and make it a better, safer place. Uh, right, let's move on. The ruling over Roe v. Wade in America has caused debate here in the UK. I've got to say, personally, I stayed away from it a little bit because I'm not a fan of you know, feeling the need to, oh, this has happened in America, so let me sit here and interfere in the UK. I don't really appreciate it, and I don't really appreciate it when it happens in the reverse either. Uh, but today, I've kind of strayed from that because the Tory MP, Danny Kruger, has raised the matter in Parliament here yesterday. That, uh, ..that women have an absolute right of bodily autonomy in this matter, whereas I think in the, yes. case, in the case of abortion, that right is qualified by the fact that another body is involved. But we can disagree on that question. That's the, pur- that's the purpose. We disagree on that question. And I offer to members who are trying to talk me down that this is a proper topic for political debate. Yes, Danny, it's a proper topic for debate. Well, if you can't have a proper debate on a proper topic on Jubes and Co, where can you do it? Right. Emma, where do you stand on it all? I am fully in favour of a woman's right to choose. Uh, nobody should be forced to carry a baby they don't want to have to term. Uh, there are term limits for abortions, uh, and it is extremely rare for a woman to have an abortion in the latter part of the pregnancy. And when that happens, it's almost always due to the fact that it is a, a medical reason for that for that uh, abortion. Um, we should have much greater... Uh, Education, sex education for younger women, uh, for people in schools, much, much better and more clear uh, education around birth control. Abortions should be safe, rare and legal. And that is simply the bottom line. And the truth is, and we all know this is the truth, you make abortion illegal, you don't stop abortion, you kill women. Mm, Well, uh, Daniel says, no, it's not true. What's not true, Daniel? Well, first of all, I'm glad Emma put put it the way she did because um, uh, she's agreeing that women don't have bodily autonomy uh, in the sense in which, you know, they have the absolute right to do whatever they want. Um, And it's true of men as well. Men and women don't have bodily autonomy in this country. And um, the law takes an interest. And she said there are term limits. And presumably she'd be... She agrees those term limits should be observed. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I'm not so, that. so that that those are legal limitations put on abortions uh, that Emma accepts. And I thought she was going to say she was in favour of bodily autonomy, but she's accepting a position uh, that I would ex- uh, say, which is bodily autonomy doesn't exist. And and the assertion that the, to say that there is a, a right, whether it's a woman or a man, to bodily autonomy is pure assertion. There's no argument behind it whatsoever, and there's no legal basis for it. And what Danny Kruger on top of that is saying, that in this case, in the case of abortion specifically, it's not just that you don't have bodily autonomy, but there is another life involved. And that is true as well. And there has to be some weight given to that, some weight given to that. You can't just blank it out totally. That's all. Well, I disagree. I, I think that we don't have bodily autonomy, but we should. Because it seems to me that autonomy is not something you can have on Monday and Tuesday, but not on Wednesday and Thursday. And the minute you have a selective approach towards bodily autonomy, man or woman, then what you're doing is essentially interfering in people's private decision-making. And when you begin to politicize private decision-making, what you fundamentally call into question is people's ability to act in accordance with their conscience. Now, I take the freedom of conscience to be the most foundational 
freedom that we have in an enlightened society. And we understand that and when you begin to politicize people's private decision-making, what you're doing is you're moving towards a kind of soft totalitarianism. Now, one side of the culture was doing that already when they say the personal is political, when they tell us what to think and what words to use. Now, the other side is saying that we think that women are either too stupid or too irresponsible or are not able to make the choices that is in accordance with their own inclination, their own circumstances. There's also a bigger problem here because if any woman is forced to have a child that she doesn't really want, she cannot be expected to take responsibility for that. It wasn't her decision. It was somebody else who decided for her. And there's nothing worse, in, in, from my experience, than having, uh, having children in a circumstance where those kids are not really wanted. Let me just Sorry, clarify. Saying, you, yeah. Frank seems to be suggesting that yeah. it wasn't the woman's decision. That, that would be true if the woman had been raped or coerced into conceiving the child. I understand that. But he seems to be saying that applies... To, to, even to a woman who decided to become pregnant and then doesn't change her mind. Is that what he's saying? Absolutely, he absolutely. To, if people circum- I, I know women, you know, who have this great loving relationship and then they discover that the man they've been in love with has died. Or, 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 yeah. or, or they discover... And then there's the question or, of the fact or, or, that you or, or have they an, another that, life involved. If we're going to talk about bodily autonomy... Involved. But just well two involved. seconds, can I just clarify what you're saying? So are you saying, Frank, that you believe in entire bodily autonomy to the point where a woman can abort a child at any point in the pregnancy? And for any reason. Well, the, the point is, is that, as you for all know, reason, 90, 98% of abortions, 99% of abortions are taken at a very early point in a woman's uh, pregnancy. No, but I'm not talking about that. I'm asking you about your... Never mind statistically who does what where. Is your position that if a woman uh, wants an abortion at any point of her pregnancy, so up until 40-odd weeks, whatever, yeah. for pretty much any reason, then that's her right? I, I, I do believe that autonomy is autonomy, and once we begin to put conditions on it, we so, lose... So, yes, or, absolutely. Sorry, sorry to press you. Absolutely, yeah. yes. I'm so, a... you think... So, for example, I get pregnant. Uh, I find out that my fella has been cheating on me. He's a bit of a wrong one. I'm 38 weeks pregnant, and I think to myself, I don't want his kid. Uh, in fact, actually, I want to hurt him. He's hurt me by cheating on me. I want to get my own back, so I'm going to abort his child at 38 weeks. You'd be in favour of that dynamic. Because I, I trust women. Women are responsible individuals. But what about the right of the child? Well, it seems to me that there are two issues uh, in in conflict with each other. There's a woman who's who's carrying that child, who's who's developed her conscience, her her sense of responsibility. And and it's not a child that she's carrying because the child is someone that's born after after pregnancy. There's a First, well, a fetus, that's just and then the additional matter. Well, are, are you saying that an embryo is the same as a child? What I'm, saying, you know, what I'm saying is that at a certain point, and the point gets earlier all the time, yeah. the child is perfectly viable outside the womb. And you can have these definitional arguments. I'm, I'm happy I'm to. I'm not having a, I'm happy I, I, to, I'm I'm having a moral so argument. Why do I'm we always talk about women's bodily autonomy? Here's a suggestion. This is a debate program. Let's debate a new idea. If we want to stop abortion, how about compulsory vasectomies for every man under the age of 40? That's, that's taking away bodily autonomy and stopping abortion. Frank that's a Daniel similar idea, isn't it? That there? would also yeah. take away voluntary pregnancy, wouldn't it? And would just, no, because they're reversible. Contraception fails all the is time. Is vasectomy reversible? Yeah, absolutely. 
Oh, right. Well, I mean, well, I, I didn't even know that. But, but, but you're taking away... Well, you're I'm taking sure away an abortion hurts too, yeah. but, you know, you're bodily autonomy. Away, you're taking away the opportunity for people to have children voluntarily. Is that what... No, I'm not. If, well, if it's perfectly reversible. Say that they're, they're up for it's them. a way of stopping abortion. That's what you want, isn't no, it? No, 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 no. Why does men's bodily autonomy matter more than women's? There's odd about this, isn't there? Because most political arguments are about choosing between things that people think are good. So we just had one. Some people say, I mean, your viewers wrote in, spend more on defence, because defence is good. And others would say, no, no, you should spend more on the NHS, because the NHS is good, and that's what I... So we have those arguments. Absolutely. Here we have an argument where actually nobody is willing to say that abortion is good. Nobody is saying, let's have a target of having more abortions because they're so great, we want more of them. You you missed the argument. Everyone accepts. Everyone accepts. Let's have more wanted pregnancies. Every abortion. Let's have fewer poor children. Let's have fewer unwanted children. That's a good thing. That's a great it's a tragedy for the mother, the child, and for it's other people It's not always a tragedy. Well. Sometimes it's not. And nobody not. thinks you should have targets for having more. So you're in a very strange position. I think there should be targets for having fewer unwanted pregnancies. Really Absolutely. Nobody wants. Right, but, hang but, on, Frank, come on. Yeah, abortion, wants uh, to there is nothing good about abortion, but there's everything yeah. that's, that's good about the right to make choices about your life. And in supporting the right to make choices, that is a good in and of itself because the freedom of conscience... And the freedom of private decision making yeah, is, 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 is foundational in our yeah, society. You, you, you don't accept that you have a freedom of private decision making if you're going to go out and harm other people and whatever. No, you accept no, no. the limitations. We're, we're talking about so a all family of this line. argument is about whether you're harming somebody else. No, it's not. It's all an argument. It, you, you, you want to insist it's a private decision, and Danny Kruger is saying no, it's not an entirely private decision. Because there's another life involved. He's saying and that I, as a politician, it. will decide rather than a woman about what the abortion will be. So you've got a politician well, here the who's, who hasn't got to live with the consequences of any of the issues that he's discussing. He's saying that this is a political debate. We've got to depoliticize abortion. It shouldn't no, be a political you, you, you discussion. You can only no, really depoliticize by changing think, the law. I think he means the term limits. And I'm actually quite astonished that you think, because you said something like, um, you know, it's a fetus basically until it's born. Is that, am I, I don't want to put words into your mouth, so I'm just checking. Is that what you mean? Well, what, what, what I was saying was that, because uh, uh, Daniel was talking about a child, and I was saying that what we're talking about is not the killing of a child or the termination of a child, because the child is, is something that evolves at a certain point, you know, sort of after pregnancy. But let me ask you this. Have you ever spent, have you got any experience of premature babies? I do. I had a son who was premature, yeah. So you will know, I mean, I, just for transparency, I... Uh, ran into problems at 28 weeks in my pregnancy, which is very early for those of you that are not familiar with the timeframes. And my little boy was born very prematurely and I spent a long time in what's called a NICU, a neonatal intensive care unit. And I encountered babies um, that were as young as 23 weeks um, that can go on and live. And when I hear people say well, it's not a child until the umbilical cord's cut and it's not a child until it's born. I feel so strongly that that is not the case. And what I would say to you is when you say, well, this woman's going to be forced to have this kid and she won't want the kid, we have an adoption programme in this country and we have many, many people, some people will be watching this, that would be desperate to provide a loving home to a child that for whatever reason can't remain with its birth mother. But, but you, you know, I, I know a lot of women who have given up their children for uh, adoption, uh, who are actually 
morally destroyed by that particular event. They, they, they never forget that child that they had to give up. It, it, it may be okay for the person who's doing the adopting, but for that woman to have been forced into a situation where she gave pregnancy to a child she did not want and then having to give it up is almost like a double well, blow. There are lots of women who regret having had an abortion. Uh, there are, yeah, but the point is, we go back to what the point, is, it's choice. People make choices and they have to live with the consequences of those choices. And I would argue that in a civilized society, we trust our people to make the right kind of choices. Sometimes they make silly choices, but unless we presume in favour of choice making, then but we who protects it. the child in all of this? Because Emma, I want to give. I want to give. I am almost out of time, which is a real shame because I really could spend a lot more on this. And I want to give the the last word to you. But you know, some of the things that I'm uncomfortable with in this country, we have legal limits, a term limits. So, but in this country, for example, you can abort a child right up until pretty much the due date if it's got a condition: cleft palate, cleft lip, club foot. Now, I don't know the people's familiarity with some of these conditions, but I personally think that is appalling because I look at these conditions and these are fixable, manageable conditions to kill a child. And this is where many people disagree on this conversation because what is a child and what is not a child? To me, having seen a very premature child and children, plural, I do regard... Um, termination of, a, to me, what is a child, at stages like 24-plus weeks, for whatever reason, except really extreme scenarios, you know, if someone, the mum's about to die or the child, whatever, if there's an extreme scenario, that's different. But for things like when we start talking about club foot, cleft lip, cleft palate, they're not reasons to kill a child up to the due date. But no, no, I, I, I don't know the stats and I'd love to see them. I imagine that's exceptionally rare. But I talk about but I think the, the question is, yes, there are term limits and that is probably right. And if abortion is to be legal, Daniel is right on one thing, which is that we have to have laws that d say how abortion is done in the same way as any other medical procedure is regulated. And if we're going to have abortion as a medical procedure, then there has to be regulation. Regulation is ultimately part of a democratic system. Yeah. So that has to happen in that way. And those uh, very, very broad terms are set by politicians, but they should set, be set by politicians not based on emotive language and blackmail of women, but on what the people who are the medical experts say is the right for course forward that works for primarily mothers or women because those are the people who are who the burden is on and that has to be the primary source and if you don't want them to be the primary source then invest a lot more money in sex education and pregnancy prevention because that's how you stop abortion See, this debate could rumble on and on and on but only for time reasons I have to draw it to a close and I have to say, it's nice to be able to have a respectful debate on what can be, for many people at least, quite an emotional subject. Um, so that's what we need more of in this society, I think, more respectful uh, debate on important matters rather than this constant falling out. Um, I'll have some of your thoughts on that topic after the break. I'll leave you going into the break with a simple thought. Uh, when it comes to men, I mean, we talk about vasectomies and all the rest of it, there are these simple things called condoms. I mean, They're only 96% effective. Well, you know, that'd be a start. Anyway, uh, I'll move on, shall I? When we, get, when we come back from uh, the break, we'll be talking about politics. <laughs> 
you know, are you engaged in the political system? Do you vote? Have you always voted? Is it time for First Past the Post, our current electoral uh, system, to be replaced with uh, proportional representation? We'll be looking at that for the break. Coming up on The Mark Stein Show, the crumbling cops after the Met Police was put into special measures following systemic failures, former Chief Superintendent Palm Sandu will be here to shine a light on whether this is the final nail in the coffin for the struggling force. All the stories of the vaccine injured and bereaved now form part of the government inquiry into COVID. We'll be taking a closer look at the small print. Plus, the Statman is back. Jamie Jenkins will be separating the facts from the fiction and is on a mission to get all of us looking beyond the smoke and mirrors. All that and more on The Mark Stein Show tonight from 8 o'clock. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubery. Keeping me company is my panel, Daniel Moylan, a former advisor to Boris Johnson and now Tory life peer in the House of Lords, the author and academic Frank Brady and the political consultant Emma Burnell. I've got to say that entire break was spent with us lot uh, continuing that conversation uh, just about who decides what and where uh, when it comes to life generally. Should there be boundaries? Who should define the boundaries? It's a fascinating topic. Um, sometimes, I tell you, I'm really tempted to take whole shows and go deep into some topics. I might do that, you know, uh, in the summer when Parliament is in recess and the politicians are not there messing things up. I might get into some decent topics like this. Uh, anyway, coming up at 7 o'clock, you've got Nigel Farage. Nigel, good evening. What have you got for us? Good evening. Well, I can't match the spirited debate that you're having there in the studio, but what I can do is to say that GB News' political editor, Darren McCaffrey, has secured an exclusive 10-minute interview with the Prime Minister from the summit at Madrid, the NATO summit, uh, and he asks the Prime Minister in that interview, uh, and indeed we will debate on my show at 7 o'clock, should we be spending more on defence, and in particular, should we not be cussing the British Army in the way in which we are? You'll see the interview with Darren asking Boris Johnson those very questions. I'll pick up from there. Sounds good. By the way, Nigel, uh, proportional representation, we'll be debating that in a sec. You're passionate about this? Yes, I have been for a long time. I felt that the House of Commons does not represent where the country is on so many things. Uh, the Brexit referendum rather proved how out of touch Westminster is with the people. We vote negatively in this country. We vote, we say, well, we, we dislike this party um, a little bit less than we dislike the other party. Uh, millions of people who would vote in elections just don't bother because they don't feel represented at all. Uh, and I led a party in 2015 that got four million votes and one seat in the House of Commons. I mean, what a complete and utter nonsense that is. And I'm pleased to say that Andy Burnham has now spoken up and says that Labour should commit to proportional representation. Interestingly, YouGov polling from March now shows many more people support PR than support our current first-past-the-post. And I believe it's a change that the Tories will resist, but I believe it's a change that is coming. Well, we're just about to get into it here, Nigel. Thanks for your thoughts on that. Daniel, I'll start with you. Proportional representation, yes, no? Well, there's a deeper question here. We've moved to a system in the last 20 or 30 years where people definitely feel they're voting for a party rather than for a person. In fact, legally, we don't vote for parties in uh, general elections. 
we vote for an individual to represent us. And, and up until the rot started in the 1980s, up until the 1970s or 80s, you couldn't even have your party membership on the ballot paper if you were a candidate. You could only have your name because we were never meant to be voting for a party but always for the right individual. Now we think we're voting for parties. We've suddenly shifted without any change in the legal basis. We all think we're voting for parties. And somehow it's unfair if your party doesn't get the fair share of seats. But that is actually something we should be resisting because it gives a huge amount of power to parties. And, and all we'll be doing is entrenching that and letting them choose how, who our MPs are, because they put the lists together, and we just uh, tick a box of the party. Daniel we need Moylan. to be reversing the power of parties and going back to a system which, which actually, going back to thinking about this as who is the right person to represent me, which is what our system is actually based on Daniel. and why it's better than PR. You know I like you, but come on now. Aren't you just saying this because basically you know that if we had PR in this country, it would be the Tories and Labour that would be absolutely battered. It would no. be them that would stand no. to lose. No, I don't think that's the reason at all. That's why I raised that it's a much more important issue about how we see our democracy and who it is we're actually choosing. And I really don't want to live... Oh, I would live, but it would be, it'd be less attractive to live in a country where all of the candidates are just chosen on party lists and put together in secret rooms when at least you have choices, you have the possibility of independent candidates... Um, and people have a real opportunities to vote for individuals to represent their areas. That's the system that we've always had, and that's the system legally we still have. Go, go and have a party Tory system if you want. End up like I, I. It is true. I am. I'm not. I'm not only. I'm not elected. I don't actually even have a vote in general elections. Let's get that out on the table straight away. Nonetheless, I live in this country. And, and you want the Parliament, you want the House of Commons to look just like the House of Lords, where you have people put in by parties. That's absolutely fine. You, you go for proportional representation. It's a very bad move, and it undermines and damages our democracy. But already with uh, our existing system, secret li list is what it's all about. So you look at the last by-election in Wakefield, both candidates were... Uh, parachuted into Wakefield. Mm. Yeah, no, nothing no, to do. There was a, a conservative yeah, there was, but it, process yeah, but the, in Wakefield. Yeah, but and the we person always that do. No, that's not true. The person that was chosen by the, the Conservative Party was not the one that the local conservatives wished to have. It, it was the one that central office uh, sort of promoted. I know, I know this for a fact. But the well, point, the, the, the really important vote, you know. the, the really important thing here is that politics is not working at the moment. And one of the reasons why it's not working is because there are millions of people without a voice. And one of the tragedies that we have is, as Nigel was saying earlier on, we're tending to vote against parties rather than for parties. That's the British and, and that it seems to me to be a, a fact of life. Now, if you look at the by-elections, people were tactically voting uh, against a particular party rather than for a particular party. And, and that's, that, to me, is not a good thing. Now, in order to meet... Daniel's objection, we can have a smarter system where we combine both the virtues of proportional representation with also having a number of parliamentary seats. And that's, that's a practice that's been adopted by a number of European countries. But I think what I really would like to see is a, a greater opportunity for the smaller parties to make a bit of headway so that new parties with new ideas don't end up being marginalized for, for, forever in the way that is the case at the moment. So that a party like UKIP which was a very serious force in numerical term, terms, doesn't become anonymous as far as uh, Westminster is concerned. 
So to that extent, I don't think it will necessarily re-energize politics, but it will create a level playing field. Emma? I get very frustrated at how much time we talk, we spend talking about how we elect politicians. Um, I, AV has its benefits, uh, it has its disbenefits, first past the post, the same. Um, I worry about um, some forms of electoral uh, reform that what you'll end up with a whole, is a whole bunch of people who appeal to the middle ground because they are everybody's second preference. Um, and that means that what you don't get are the really interesting range of political views that are represented when you do have safe seats. So way over on the right, you've got, say, Peter Bone. Way over on the left, say, Jeremy Corbyn. And there are people in the country who feel better represented, even if they're not their seat, because people with their politics are in Parliament. And if we go to a system of PR, that won't be quite so true for those people. However, more people will feel that their vote is counted because they don't live in a safe seat. There are, you know, there are huge benefits and disbenefits to all systems. None of them are perfect. Um, what just slightly annoys me in the endless row of this conversation is we actually need to think much more interestingly, not about how we elect people, but what they do when they get there and how that looks and how we actually manage Parliament and the unelected House of Lords, the elected Commons, all of it needs to be shaken up in completely different ways that aren't about which box we tick and how every four years. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that the only way you'll get this changed is to put it into a manifesto and then win a first-past-the-post election. So, you know, you've got to think about how you're going to win that kind of election before you can start thinking about how you're going to change the system. Mm. She says change the system and she talks about House of Laws. She looks at you, Daniel. I did no, not, no, but I could have. I'm, I'm, I'm up for reform. I'm, I'm happy to be reformed. You know, if you can come up with a reform that people can agree on and that will be satisfy the House of Commons and the government and everybody else. The House of Lords doesn't need to it. be as big as it is, though, is it? Come on, I think, isn't it the second the of, largest the chamber Lords, in the world or something? Yeah, but the House of Lords um, has a lot of people in it who don't attend, don't get paid, don't get involved because they become rather elderly and whatever. They can retire now. Some of them do, some of them don't. Um, you, the number of people who are active in the House of Lords, given that it's a part-time house, you want a full-time house, you want a full-time upper house, I've got no problem with that either. But then you've got to pay people properly, you've got to give them a staff, you've got to give them proper offices. We don't have any of those things. So it's a part-time house and a part-time venture, and that means you like, like full-time equivalents is probably only half the actual number um, uh, and it's in, in terms of the, the people who actually put the work in. I defend it on those grounds. I think it should be abolished because when I mean you're no, you're, you're you're an exceptional fine. you're fine. Just leave that thought. That, I'll end your thought there. You say it should be abolished, and then I'm going to do a full stop there because we'll return to that debate uh, on another day. I just want to read some of my uh, viewers' responses out. Pat says the system has worked for years, so why change it? Patricia, that depends who you vote for. I've got to say. Um, many people would say it hasn't worked for them. George says, why don't we introduce mandatory voting? Uh, oh, cool. How would you enforce that, though? What would you do? Don't you think the police or whoever it is have got better things to do with their time than going around your house and yanking you off your sofa and getting you down to the polling station? Don't know. You tell me. Um, what else? Many people are writing in. Kathy's uh, written in uh, saying, my mum was born with a cleft palate. Um, you are to be congratulated for talking about this. I have to say, Kathy, I wish more people understood cleft uh, as a thing. And if they did... 
stigma would be removed. Many more children would have a better life as well. Uh, That's what I would say to that one. Thank you very much to my panel for their time and thank you at home for yours. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes & Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.